0: Welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Daniel Cronin, co-founder and COO of Integrated Finance. Integrated Finance is a platform that helps Fintechs launch with their payments systems all ready to go. And with that, here's my interview with Daniel. Daniel, thanks for taking the time today.
1: Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So Daniel Cronin of Integrated Finance, tell us about Integrated Finance. So Integrated Finance, ultimately, it's a platform that helps Fintechs launch, or incumbents add new offerings to to their existing customer base. What makes integrated finance different to most out there is rather than focusing on the core assets of the back end of a fintech, we focus on homogenizing the experience our fintech customers get, no matter which banking partner or KYC provider they choose to work with. Most banks have a very, very similar offering with maybe... Marginal differentiation of, of, of product and services, but the way you access and use and maintain those products are entirely different, much more so now than than ever because of the advent of the API in 1970, 80, 90, and even to some extent 2000s. Everyone used Swift, so if you wanted to work with one bank or another, it was the same deal. Banking as a service has really only been around for I don't know the last. Five to seven years with with that specific terminology. Mm State side, you're seeing a proliferation of community banks being aggregated by banking as a service platforms. In Europe, it's much more fractured. There's a lot of banking as a service players connecting to tier ones and tier two banks. And in some cases, directly into the payment schemes themselves. And they're wrapping their own unique APIs over these banks. And by wrapping uniqueness over standardization, they're dissolving that standardization. The APIs that work with Bank A are entirely different to the APIs that work with Bank B, compounded times the number of banks you're working with. And what we're really looking to do is make the entrepreneur not care about that difference and focus about what will make them different. Excellent.
0: Okay, so that was a good synopsis. Let's talk about uh, the origin of the company. How did
1: you come to be? Sure. So uh, integrated finance was started by uh, four co-founders all had a previous experience in startup land. Myself and Alistair Cotton, our CEO, we previously launched a fintech that was called FettleGo.com, which is now part of a banking as a service platform called OpenPaid, a very successful business. While growing that, we we experienced a hell of a lot of pain scaling that business and working with different banking partners. And actually, two of the early stage employees, a guy called Janai Ozel, and Karay Argon, two Turkish guys, they were invaluable in helping scale that business. So they joined Integrated Finance's co-founders, and really, Integrated Finance set out to solve the problems we faced at our previous venture from day one, rather than what we did last time, which is build something as fast as humanly possible and suffer the burden of rushed decisions forevermore. Yeah, so that's really it. We're fixing the problem we had last time and that problem every other fintech entrepreneur faces today.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an ongoing trend in technology and business, right? It's everybody who comes along and does something first has to literally build everything from the ground up. And then over time, companies discover, you know what, it would be a good idea if we provided a service to let people do this. And then basically, they could use our infrastructure a la AWS, right? So the entire platform of the service piece—it's funny. Just keeps on keep on moving up further and further up the value chain, right? So you know, sooner or later, we'll just be insert company name here. I'll open shop here. I mean, Shopify is a little bit close to that, but it's uh, yes. it's getting there. So okay, so you specifically targeted in on the payments infrastructure piece. Talk to me about why that was the piece you guys decided to target. Sure. So
1: while we target the payments piece, we go even more specific than that on on account generation something that's often overlooked in fintech, and it's just assumed that an account exists somewhere for all of broad this to function. And why did we focus on it? It really goes back to how we cut our teeth in financial services. Back in 2008, two of the founders were working for a, a currency exchange brokerage, uh, and it was our job to cold call people buying houses overseas or CFOs who really didn't want to take that call and say, hey, Mr. CFO, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Homebuyer, we can give you a better exchange rate than your bank will be willing to to buy your house overseas. And if you can save 1% on a $300,000 purchase, that's a lot of money. Same deal if you were if you were a business importing from, say, Mexico in pesos, or uh, if you're a, a, a British business importing Irish beef, uh, if you're paying 50, $100,000 a month, if you can save 1% on that, it's material savings. And what was happening at the time is globalization was beginning to accelerate with the advent of the internet and then Amazon. And a lot of the people that we worked with were merchants that would import from abroad and then sell that product either via a physical store or increasingly a digital store. And that was it. And they'd be very happy, you know, dealing with business. Then Amazon turned off and suddenly people stopped selling on their own store, but they'd list on Amazon and they could internationalize extremely quickly. Whereas before a business would organically grow to maybe 50 to 100 people before they'd start considering secondary markets, and therefore they'd have the team to handle the secondary market. Now you could expand to uh, 10 markets in the first year because Amazon's fulfillment service would allow you to do everything. And it was a really niche problem. These guys trusted us to give them better exchange rates, and Amazon was slamming them with a 4% markup on exchange rates if you sold your product on one of their foreign marketplaces. So all of these guys would say, "Hey, hey, hey! How can you help? You're, you're helping me. <laughs> yeah. you're helping me buy this stuff for zero point four percent markup. But when I sell it abroad, I'm getting four percent. Help me!" The, the The rule at the time was: this is going back some way. The rule at the time was: if you didn't have a bank account in the country uh, where the sale took place, sorry, but we have to convert four percent. So there was a rush. For you've heard of Payoneer, you've heard of. Well, first, there was a rush from all of these FX brokerages that were serving those customers to find a way to issue them bank accounts in their own name in the marketplace that they were selling. in. so Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, Amazon Australia, Amazon Hong Kong, wherever it was, all of these guys rushed to issue them accounts. And so our previous venture was a really a solution to, uh, that targeted Amazon sellers. And the important piece was we wanted to issue those guys bank accounts. Now, we weren't particularly good at retailing this to millions of users. And what ended up happening was the fintechs that we were competing with said, hey, I got 5,000 customers. My customers want that. Why don't you give me your software and I'll use it with my banks? And that was really where the idea for integrated finance was born. Now, at the time, we were a regulated entity ourselves, So it, it was very difficult for us to lend someone our software without them using our banking rails. And when we exited that business... We wanted to make the software aspect of this account generation front and center of what we're doing. So why are we in the payment space and the account space? It's to give fintech and non-fintech alike greater control of their desired user base. And the, the principal reason you increase engagement with anyone in any industry is by giving them some kind of an account. It's the reason social media makes you register first. It's the reason Amazon says, hey, make an account rather than just just pay your bill without us collecting any of your details. And the stickiest of all engagement mechanisms is a bank account. If you're a lender and you can give the person you're lending to a bank account, they're much more likely to request a loan again. If you are a a merchant using Stripe or someone else to acquire funds, you're much more likely to continue to do other things with that provider of services if they are holding your funds, if they're banking you as well. And we want to make it easy for any fintech and eventually any business at all to install that level of loyalty into their existing customer base without having to handle the complexity of everything that goes along with that type of infrastructure. So, all right. So you've done all this. So talk about the consumer experience or the not consumer experience in
0: this case, but the, the enterprise experience. I have a company I want to basically launch that does whatever in the fintech space. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, it is going to rely on people sending me money and me sending money to people, right? So basically everything that fintech touches
1: has this issue. How do you solve for this problem? So the most important thing for the client that wants to work with us to understand is what is their customer's experience going to be? And it starts from there because there is hundreds of, Bass vendors globally that all offer a somewhat similar service, but it's the, it's the long tail of edge cases that stops this project going live, takes it 12 months of seed capital burn to, to, to get down the line. What we really prize ourselves on doing is knowing as many of the edge cases as, as possible that will trip somebody up. A really, 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 really boring yet simple example would be, will you need for whatever reason to issue more than one bank account to your customer? Often, in retail, the answer is no. People just they take their checking account and away they go. Not always the case, but often. If you're a business, businesses have very quirky needs. Many of them need way more than one bank account. In some cases they need thousands of bank accounts. And whilst the underlying functionality of every bank is the same, some simply can't issue more than one account to a single user, whether it's technically because of a legacy core risk because they don't like what a customer might do with all of those bank accounts or any other reason, that's the sort of thing that it's a question that goes unasked when a fintech is talking to a bank. What happens is fintech signs a bank, Several months later, they go, hey, why am I struggling to issue this second account? Nobody really knows the answer because they never bothered to ask. And it turns out, oh, wait, we actually can't do that. Great. Well, you signed a three-year commitment to this fintech. That's one example of 10,000 other examples that any of your listeners should be jumping on the jaw to not yawn to that we understand and we, we shine a light on that from day one. So when a customer comes to us, the first thing we do is we analyze what their requirements are and we set them up with a sandbox that works with a bank that can do what they want. That's the most important thing. So they'll log into our platform, they'll drop their API key from their bank in, in, into our platform, or two systems will sync. So it might be bank A and integrated finance. And then there's a user interface and there's a dev center where a dev can ping a payload to us and then an the account will generate or a non-technical person will get their index finger out and click open bank account. We'll submit that to the bank in question and an account will be generated.
0: Excellent. So, I mean, that's as easy as you can make it, right? Literally tie your, tie your company's bank account to that structure and then basically do all the routing and all the basic, all the code, almost like coding, because some of this stuff is no code in your case, or it's, it's platform-based. And then basically do all the logic on your platform.
1: Exactly. So there's four letters that scares every American when looking to do business with, with Europeans. That's GDPR. So one of the things about integrated finance that we didn't think was a selling point, but it turns out it is, is the fact that we've built our platform from a security perspective and data protection perspective here in the UK and Europe, and it just conforms to GDPR. So American customers that are quickly establishing a UK company out here, they'll gravitate towards anything that gets rid of that sort of pain. But beyond that, there's always legal nuance no matter where you go. It works the same in the States, even state by state, and certainly the cases here in the UK. A really simple example, most people psychologically imagine the UK is part of Europe, and so when they say, I'm going to go to Europe. Did they, they not pay work. attention to Brexit? But anyway, continue. Exactly. Well, philosophically, that's the case. But technologically, they go, well, it's Europe. But um, if you try and issue a, a European with a bank account from a British bank, uh-uh, it doesn't work. If you try and issue a Brit a account from a European bank, equally, it doesn't work. And there's so many vendors who operate in both, both territories. That force you to do two integrations, not one, one with the European arm and one with the UK arm to deliver exactly the same service. What, again, a small boring example here is when you board a customer with integrated finance software, the first thing our software will do is it will look up the country that that business or individual is resident in, and it will route the account generation logic based on what's going to get me sent to jail for breaching, breaching regulation. Failing that, the next step is, where is the cash going to be deposited? And then the third one is, who's actually the cheapest? And then finally, the fourth is, who's the fastest at doing what I want to do? So we'll orchestrate all of that logic just because we have to, and that frees up the energy of the CTO who's who's trying to deliver all of this complexity to actually do something that will help win them a customer, because those four things, who cares?
0: Yeah, it's I kind of smile and like, oh, it's in Europe. So therefore, you know, it should be fine to do it in the UK. It's like, really, have you have you seen how broken the infrastructure can be in, in some countries, including the US? I mean, depending on the segment we're talking about, state by state, things get very, very different sometimes. Okay, so so basically, talk to me about, I got to, like, this has got to be a loaded question, but what's the general ROI look like? I mean, how, how much time are you saving people here? I can't I can't imagine the difference in basically going down to the base code and having to build this from scratch versus just plugging in and going? Like,
1: what kind of time stamp are we talking about here? So this is uh, every venture capitalist's favorite question. And uh, I, I'm afraid the answer isn't um, as, as exciting as I'd like it to be, because the thing that isn't measured is the, is the graveyard. Um, what you're really doing is you're, you're measuring the survivors. How much time did you save the, the people that survived? How much time would you have saved a, a chime is what they're asking. How much time would you have saved a revolute? Never mind the thousands that limp on and end up having pretty average products because they misassess the uh, length of time it would take to build the non-differentiating stuff. So if for a successful startup, you could easily say we save between three and 15 months easily because building a ledger, th- there's companies that just build ledgers for a living. That's a complex thing. Our system has one. Building a GDPR and InfoSec-compliant uh, system infrastructure that can accept ACH, Fedwire, SEPA, SEPA Instant, faster payments, Swift, CHAP, BACs, and a plethora of other payment mechanisms into those ledgers, that's a, that's a 12-month build as well. Having logic and orchestration on top of that, you can compound all of these and say it's five years. But what you can say is more companies fail to deliver this after having decided to have done it Than you'll ever hear about. So, if we're just measuring survivors, three to fifteen months easily. But the problem is way bigger than that. Innovation is there's a stranglehold on innovation because I would say over half of the fintechs that wanted to launch with product product X either never launched or ended up launching with product Y because it was ten times harder. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm often the
0: person who ends up lecturing people on the graveyard, specifically at earlier stages when people are coming to me with what they think is a fantastic idea for number one and number two are always financial advisor client dating sites or like in terms of like finding your advisor and then like the other one is direct-to-consumer financial planning software and my response is always yeah there's no one doing this or there's people like, there's no one you're seeing because of the giant graveyard of bodies who tried and gave up right and i think if all too often we we do not focus on that's right you know you could have saved revolute a bunch of time but how many more revolutes could exist if you had existed in the first place? And that is that is evidenced by the supernova explosion of technology companies that, come up, that have come about since the advent of a platform as a service technologies like AWS. I mean, I can't remember what yeah. I was reading, but it was, I think actually may have been Peter Thiel's book talking about how when he realized with AWS, how big it was going to be was going around talking to startups. And over the course of three months, 90% of them had built off AWS. And the cost things were just substantial. So it was like, okay, this is the single biggest change we're, we're going to see in God knows how long. So you're absolutely right. The number of people it's just just
1: fantastic. It's 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 enormous. We can, can can be done. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that we one of the things that we typically see is if I just looked at my sales pipeline, there's this huge wave of innovation at the top of the funnel where we see the value, we feel the pain, we we hear our buddies complain about it. Every day, we hear ideas that make total sense, even if we've got no direct experience of that problem. But you never see that problem get solved. And it's always for exactly the same reason. It's it's the mountain of non-differentiating stuff that needs to be built before you can get your head above the waterline just to breathe. So yeah, what we're really trying to do is bring down the waterline so that more people can breathe and and actually flourish. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's, kind of crazy to think of the simple
0: fact that at the end of the day, the things that were, it wasn't innovation, it wasn't the idea, it wasn't all that. It was the fact that it was going to take X million dollars to get from point A to even launching your website versus think about, again, pre, I'll, I'll always pick on AWS, AWS, but think about like, you, you have to buy servers, you have to buy big expensive servers to handle capacity, right? Like that was not small. And it is, when you start thinking about the plethora of, just like you said, a simple example of what you've done, it's plugging your bank account and Go. My God, like the amount of time saved is it's hard to, it's hard to really capture the amount of of what can be built on top of that. So, so yeah, well done. So bottom line is you basically provide this platform where people just plug into manage all their payment systems or, or their other FinTech systems that, so they can basically do what they need to do in terms of account opening money movement, all of that, and make it easy. Let them focus on the core of their experience. Makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. It's like you're 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 an you're a third party that's not a challenger bank because you know we've seen this model with challenger banks where they're basically or banking as a service you know, basically giving out their services to others. You kind of sit as a as a, a layer over top of that that is non specific to
1: any one bank. Is that correct? Exactly. Holistically, what we try and do is make the entrepreneur care less about how to work with the, their chosen bank. But we are fairly strategic on how we add banks to our network, because it's not a case of, I want this bank, and then, hey, I'll go and integrate it. Every entrepreneur listening to this would know I'd be full of crap if that's what I said. But we've got our own bandwidth constraints. So the the way we think about our our marketplaces, whilst we don't want our client to care about the nuance of the different partners, they just, who's giving you the best price? Who do you get the best vibe and relationship over? And who has the the product's. That is absolutely core to your offering. And quite often what we found was the, and in our previous venture, we found the answer to that was none. They all had a piece of the pie that that was better than everyone else's, but had significant glaring holes otherwise. So as we expand the marketplace of integrations that integrated finance houses and homogenizes, we're trying to focus on fixing the gaps of each. So there are some amazing, Currency exchange platforms out there. One of the ones that we work with today is a, is a company owned by Visa called Currency Cloud, and they're probably yeah they're they're probably the leaders of, of that particular space. However, their product enables a customer to do so much that what ends up happening is the customers want to add other features onto that to make it an even more powerful offering. Now, it's not in Currency Cloud's interest to add every single feature that every customer ever asks for. Otherwise, they're just going to dilute their own original functionality and what makes them world leaders at, at currency exchange, and it's going to impact their experience. So what we would do is we listen to our customers and say, what else would you like from your go-to-market? And they might say, well, you know, there's this specific market where I've got to have real-time payments, and we'll look at the best providers of that service and we'll we'll integrate them, and by doing that, what we're doing is we're combining a super powerful uh, tool like Currency Cloud along with the real time payments for this specific region, and now the customer gets the best of both worlds. Or it or it could be could be a company like Modular here in the UK, which have a very specific set of features that are really probably one of the leaders in the market, but they don't do FX, and so we'll pair that solution so the mutual customer of both doesn't have to build an integration and an integration. They can aggregate it into a single interface and API and express that to their customer like a brand new incumbent, market pl- uh, an incumbent marketplace can move funds instantly or, or an international payment service. And crucially, we're just saying to our customer, stop caring about how you, one, integrate bank A, two, integrate bank B, and then the kicker, three, how do you make those two things work in sync? Don't worry about it worry about what's above the waterline. worry about what your customer is doing. That's really where we focus. Excellent. And it seems like you're accomplishing that quite well. Yeah, yeah. Traction's been pretty good to date. Um, one thing that we really wish we could focus on is some of the is making making every feature that we have as accessible irrespective of size of customer as possible. There's as there will always be there's there's way more innovation happening at in the long tail than in the head. However, even today, as we aggregate these solutions, we find there's plenty of work to be done industry-wide on reducing the cost of entry for a lot of these players until, until, we've got, until we can drive the cost down for all participants. We think true innovation in fintech is going to be somewhat lagging uh, compared to other industries.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, and this is something that permeates basically every level of finance. So everything from the unbanked to people who are unadvised, there's always discussions about the advice gap and everything else. And more often than not, you know, people wave their hands and say, Oh, we need to do stuff that involves like commissions or whatever. My response is no, we need to drop the cost of operation to the point where even small clients are profitable enough for, for businesses to pursue. And don't get me wrong. There'll always be, and this is my side tangent, always be clients that are too small to be profitable, but then that's where pro bono other initiatives can come in. But as for the same problem, permeates in technology, exactly, right? Is that if we don't make the cost of entry in, in, to basically be as low as possible, then any number of constrained innovative ideas who, do not have, who are not
1: capital rich will never see the light of day. Yeah, absolutely. But also, I think there's, there's an asymmetric relationship with industries that are currently growing rapidly and the way legacy industries are, are built to serve that growth. One that financial services is particularly guilty of right now is the creator economy. Now, well before COVID, YouTube YouTube creation was at an all time high and continues to grow. More musicians are listing on Spotify than ever before. TikTok, obviously, although that that's probably another kettle of fish with what's I'll going on. much longer as legal to continue. It, it, exactly, but but there's this huge burgeoning gig slash creator economy where technology, data technology, has accelerated and accelerated, made it easier and easier and easier for people to become the masters of their own destiny, doing something that they love. However, financial services is intrinsically linked into everybody's life. And we just, we just ran a, a, an incubator where a, a bunch of the coolest startups that have previously approached us And for one reason or another, not been able to get live either because it all ended up being too complicated with all these banks or just too expensive. We decided, why don't we get an incubator together, bring in the component, uh, the constituent parts of the solution for these guys and spot commonalities and work on reducing the friction between all of these enterprises to get these guys live. Four of the coolest startups were all serving the creator economy. And all of these guys identified super, super obvious, clear problems where financial services fails to offer a service to these guys. So one simple example is creator revenues. A lot of um, a lot of YouTubers make significantly more than the average person in the world. However, mortgage companies don't deem that to be a reliable source of income. Fair enough. But if you've been making you know, $10,000 checks every month for 15, 16 months, it's so it's somewhat it's as reliable as, as the next revenue, but there's no way to tie that to your credit score. Even getting paid for that work can be very difficult sometimes because the way Google AdSense and these guys verify the existence of a bank account, probably only four or five banks have access to the various systems for authorizing that credit. Whereas all of these new fintechs that are targeting these guys aren't able to, to perform the verifications the way the marketplaces require for these creators to get paid. Another example is there's a fintech that went through our incubator where influencers promote products. Of course, that's that's one of the ways that they finance their existence and their career choice. But you'll often see a creator say, here's the sponsor bit. They'll tell you about the sponsor. And then they'll say, if you're interested, go onto their website and type in this code, which nobody ever does. You go to bed, you fall asleep, and then the next day you go, hmm, what was that product? You'll just go directly onto their website. And there's no way for the merchant to attribute that sale to, to the influencer. Now, you might say, to, oh, well, maybe the merchant wants that because they're getting the traffic anyway. Well, no, the merchant doesn't want that because they don't know which influence is driving them. And so they're kind of scattergunning who's going to get them the most sales. The influencer, the influencer themselves, they're getting no they're getting no payback on that. So, In our incubator, there was a a retail solution targeting that problem by creating a a single marketplace where the influencers could upload everything that they've ever recommended and their supporters could go on there and buy it through that marketplace. So the market, the influencer always gets their cash and the, the merchant knows who did it. And there was more and more and more of these solving the creator economy problem. Yet today, there's maybe one, maybe two products that have reached scale to try and tackle that problem and solve it. And they're not even doing it as a niche. They're just they're just a big fintech that happens to have a scattergun approach where some influencers using that. Hmm. The fact that in a cohort of 12, four of the startups that came through and uh, have been approached by VCs having successfully graduated that cohort were all solving for the creator economy shows that there's there's a, a clear and yes. obvious pain point. And the fact that incumbent fintechs are not solving for that is. It should be the siren, um, should be uh, signaling the alarm uh, in financial services to say, if we don't collectively start innovating, other industries will to solve this. You've seen this in Asia where the telecoms industries dominate financial services because they were the ones that innovated to own the customer relationship over the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And um, if we don't start doing that, I worry the same will happen here. Yeah, it's
0: funny because I've seen, I mean, I've seen a plethora of gig economy uh, services, right? So people who work on basically get paid via Uber or something in that effect and maybe have a payment delay, basically being able to pay them sooner. So, you know, it's, it's as, and it makes sense as the economy and the nature of work changes, traditional financial institutions struggle to keep up with that, or they're just not incentivized until the market becomes large enough, creating the opportunity for smaller players to come in and fill those voids, which was incredibly difficult before the advent of companies like yours Because now, hey, opportunity exists. We can action it quickly. It's not going to take a $2.5 million raise in order
1: to get there. We can stand something up pretty quickly. Yeah, I think it's a pretty multifaceted problem as well. Not only are banks over time less and less and less interested in, in engaging with the end user's problem, you say moving to the top of the value chain, I say running away from the customer. So you've got banks running away from the customer. At the same time, you've got regulators, and I don't disagree that they're doing this. It's just uh, an observation of a, of a burgeoning problem in the industry. Banks are running away from the customer. Regulators are increasing the demands to serve the customer. There's a big issue uh, here in, in Europe and the UK called consumer duty, where yeah. even like the, the youngest of the youngest fintech startup is being told by regulators, you have to have expert access for every single type of customer ever. Because you're not allowed to launch a product that doesn't cater to the needs of, say, vulnerable people, or 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 this category of people, which I I fundamentally disagree with. Because a lot of fintech start start focus on a niche, our niche, I think a niche. That's, yeah.
0: It, no, you have to it, be. Exactly. So basically, they're telling them instead of taking advantage of the one area that you can actually can carve out a competitive advantage. No, 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 no. You need to crush yourself, providing infrastructure to compete with the largest financial institutions in the world. What an asinine it, approach. Like principles, it, like it, the it, principles it, of what they got to do, like in terms of maintain that fine, but like to force them
1: to do that, just ridiculous. Exactly. And so, what I see as banks re, retrace away from service and they look for aggregators, BAS providers typically, and the BAS providers are serving these fintechs. If these fintechs themselves are being told, no, 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 you've got to make sure all all customers, vulnerable or otherwise, or or whatever the specific needs of this subset of to if you have to focus on all of them, you're just going to have zero innovation. And ultimately, the whole point of, uh, say, in the UK, a, a non-bank regulator, you've got the Prudential Authority catering to the banks, and you've got the Financial Conduct Authority catering to the non-banks. The whole point of that was to encourage innovation. And I get their absolute first first requirement should be to protect the consumer, yes. But you can't protect a consumer from mediocrity. And if you're turning every new innovative, potentially innovative startup into someone who needs to cater for everyone and do, will obviously do a bad job of catering for everyone, you're hurting the cons- yeah. consumer even more by killing off solutions that m- they might have really needed, but they never even got to see. You
0: know, it's interesting. There's, you know, there's the two different philosophies. I mean, two different viewpoints on regulation. One is that it's a giant pain in the butt. They never get it right. And it's, I guess, in the way. And the other one is I, which I actually believe to which is good policy can actually make for good innovation, and we've seen that right we've seen we've seen that not that consumer protection sometimes is basically a forcing consumer protection is a great way to create innovation that basically is now more secure. The reality is is that unfortunately sometimes they get it completely wrong, and that to me is just sloppy policy, quite honestly. I don't even know what else to say about that,
1: yeah. It's obviously coming from the right place, trying to reduce risk. And I, and I do think there's an element of the crypto summer having exposed frailties in policy where probably a, a lot more people got, got hurt on, uh, on the regulator's watch than, than should have ever happened. And this will be a, a panic and a retrace back from that. As crypto cools, fintechs become the higher risk category again. And uh, i would be interested to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. Anyway, ultimately, what kind of impact does that make on companies like integrated finance where before we were a a software and technology orchestrator first and foremost, we now find we're downstream we're not a regulated entity, but nonetheless we're downstream of what the regulator wants a system to do, and so we've added a lot more features than we otherwise would have on client money protection before we let our system would do the money movement, but our customer would decide. What how it would like to do it. Now we've added features that auto debit fee. So if you're, if you're charging a pound to do a, a wire transfer, we'll take that pound out of your user's account and sweep it up to a separate physical account elsewhere within your ecosystem in real time, just so you, you can show the regulator, here's my customer's money being sent out. Here's the pound I took from them for that, and I've moved it here, avoiding the FTX type scandal where you're accruing huge revenues letting it sit in your client money accounts. And then when someone's got a broker, you going bust. Nobody actually knows whose money is whose. And you've got creditors and debtors alike chasing the same pennies. We've had to build a lot of that into our architecture, which has, as I, I agree with you, it's made our product more compelling for young fintechs and large businesses that have never had to deal with that sort of a risk. But it'll be interesting to, to see what the continued demands of the regulator is over the next few years and how much of that eats into the pocket of innovation from startups raising seed capital or bigger players tr- going on to raise their you know B, C, D rounds.
0: So before we wrap up, I got three questions I ask everyone on a positive note. First thing is, is if you had one
1: wish for something to change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? One wish to change something. There's a thousand small wishes, but if I was going to focus on one thing, it would probably be to force an adoption of of a set of standards for identifying individuals and businesses. Because right now, there's there's guidance given by the regulator on how you should do that. But that guidance is fairly wishy-washy, and it's open to interpretation. The regulator does not want to go and create a standard, because by creating a standard, humans are always going to human and that system will get gamed and it will be the regulator that gets blamed. But yeah. in the absence of that, you have this plethora of people who are overly cautious and people who are underly cautious. And but it also leaves space for people who are nefariously underly cautious. And we, uh, what we do, we, we're effectively a data orchestrator. We collect data in, we hoover it in, and then we transpose it based on the needs of each dis- different bank. And it makes no sense that we're having to do Six to seven transformations of that data for let's say the exact same person receiving the funds, depending on which bank it goes through. We'd love to see conformance to a standard for identity. That would be a a real big thing for us. So I hear where you're coming from and I know how frustrated everybody gets without when
0: there's a principles-based regulatory system versus a rules-based. But as you said, human innovation, we're gonna find people are gonna find ways around, around rules, right? I mean, there's no greater evidence of this than the U.S. tax code, because it's rules-based, and they just literally—it's—it's it's this ridiculous game of whack-a-mole, right? And so I get the desire. I also get the ambiguity and the frustration that causes. I just, having dealt with regulators for a long time, don't know of a better way to do it, quite honestly. So I, I sympathize with them, and I think unfortunately it's the way to do it. But it's—it's—it's it's, it's the, the actual way is somewhere in between, right? It's like hard and fast rules, but at the same time, by the way, don't go messing around because we're also going to apply this thing and. It's, uh, it's tricky. It, like, how do, you, how do you herd the cats that, it, that are human innovation and especially nefarious intentions? It's, it's really hard. Second question yeah. for you is, what's been the biggest challenge in the company and where it is today?
1: The biggest challenge would be to fully evaluate uh, the, the ecosystem that we're trying to build and strategically add new partners as we grow. Probably in the early days, we did market research and we said, okay, These guys, these guys, these guys, these guys, and these guys have the most customers. And we can see from our data that 70% of the customers are shared across them all. That must have been hell for that that 70% to integrate all of them. There's our beachhead. Let's go target these guys. But what we hadn't done is fully evaluated what was the feature set that we were distilling. And the feature set was just too broad. As much as we aggregate financial service provided into a single system, by default, you are filtering services. You can't take everyone's. So you got to choose what are the most important of each. And in the early days, what that led to was misalignment between us and the partners that we work with. Why the hell would you, a partner, want a customer to come through integrated finances rails if that meant you couldn't sell three of your 10 products? It is, there, was no, there was no alignment on that. And so what we've really worked hard to do is reevaluate over the past 15 to 18 months, who should we be focusing on? And, and we've identified a, a long list of partners who maybe weren't there originally that have fantastic services, but they have, they're always a component in, in a wider use case for their clients. And so what we're doing is making sure we establish a marketplace where all gaps are filled and we're doing minimal filtering of features for every single partner What that drives is major commercial alignment. The sales team are not afraid to send business to us because they're not going maximum uh, value can be extracted. We are hyper incentivized to make sure whatever the need in the fintech market is can be covered by that marketplace. And I probably wish I'd understood that problem much, much earlier than we did. But since since we've made the strategic decision to reevaluate how we add partners to that network, things have been moving much, much, much more smoothly. Fair enough. It's,
0: uh, chasing the wrong direction or going the wrong direction with the wrong, with not saying people are wrong people, but just the, the things aren't going to be the most, uh, the cases aren't going to get you to where you need to be the fastest is a big, big obstacle for most people. And then, uh, last question I have for you is what keeps you engaged and gets you, keeps you excited and getting you up in the morning every morning to keep on fighting the good fight of the startup world and creating this platform.
1: So taking industry out of it for a moment, everyone's, I'm guessing most people in life have, uh, you had Sunday Sunday Blues before, where you know you've had a great weekend and you're going back to work on Monday and you're feeling a little bit anxious about it. You might have had a long holiday and you're feeling a little bit, a little bit of anxiety. Finding something that you love where you don't get Sunday Blues changed my life about seven eight years ago. It was, uh, and it was it was running my own business. Now there are stuff that keeps me up every single night that I'm stressing over, but I don't get Sunday Blues. I'm hyped to get off my ass every morning and start doing something that I feel is making a difference both for me and my family's life, but for a bunch of other people's. So just having that sense of purpose from running a business is awesome. Separate to that, why do I care about financial services so much? Well, one, it's because I had a a really cool vision seven years ago when I launched my first fintech. And the product we launched was successful. But honestly, all all of the secret sauce was the marketing teams because we'd just built another fintech and it was how we marketed that and gave a a, a bit of the the marketing pizzazz about super innovative technology that was winning us business. It wasn't the underlying product. And the reason it wasn't the underlying product is because I spent 40 times more time and probably 10 times the amount of cash on stuff that customers don't care about, making sure your balance is right when you log in, making sure you're, you're a legitimate customer. And so this wave of innovation, we we never achieved our dream, the cool product that we wanted. And I and I know today that there's going to be a continuance of, of entrepreneurs whose dreams are dashed and whose real world problems are not getting solved because they're going to come up to that same juncture and fall at the same hurdle and just be another average fintech. And as long as that's happening, there will be no innovation. There's going to be no change in anybody's lives. And we just want financial services to be a means to innovate for people. I'll give you a, a super boring example. My wife is Turkish, mm-hmm. and uh, she, she migrated to the UK in part for a relationship. And having seen the absolute stress that re- retaining that visa has caused her oh. because of the ecosystem of financial services around her that just aren't designed to support a migrant, She's had to take days off work to um, go down to a bank and get statements, physical statements printed out and being signed and initialed and stamped front and back, taking the whole day off and then having learned through her community that that's actually a problem for every migrant ever. The amount of stress these people go through and no one can solve that problem because anyone who tries to ends up building just another fintech and, yeah. uh, and they, it's been so expensive that they can't solve the niche because they have to go mass market. I want to see some, everyone's got a problem. I want the cost of entry to financial services to get low enough that those problems that really stress people out in their day-to-day can be solved by someone who knows the problem best, not by an MBA or grad or someone who's, who's wealthy, who thinks they know what the problem is. That's what gets me out of bed. Fair enough. Well, worthy cause. Daniel, thank you so much for taking time today absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me it's been a great
0: time so that was dan cronin of integrated finance if you are looking to start up your fintech and you need to move money <laughs> like all of them take a good look at what they're offering as always if you enjoyed this podcast please leave a review on apple Podcasts, soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever it is at your podcast until next time take care